Women in prison are always overlooked, and we need to change that. We're mothers, sisters, wives, and friends, and our stories need to be told. I'm Miss Betty McKay, pronouns she, her, queen. I spent 27 years in CIW, the California Institution for Women. Now I'm on the advisory board of Brian Cuffed. I need your help bringing this program to women and non-binary folks at CIW for the first time. We are raising $50,000 to bring Uncuffed to incarcerated women. And we need your help. So take a second to pause your little podcast player. Go to weareuncuffed.org and click donate. Thank you. Now, on with this amazing show. K-A-L-W. Welcome to Uncuff. This is Brian Acey from San Quentin. I'm here with two distinguished gentlemen. Can you guys introduce yourself? I'm Timothy Hicks. And I'm Greg Esprich. But before we go any further, Brian Acey, we can't, I can't let this go without you letting everybody know that this is your first time actually yeah. hosting this is my first episode. Time. Yeah, I'm a, I feel um, I feel excited. Um, I never thought I'd be doing something like this. Um, a little nervous in the same thing, but um, yeah. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, you look nervous too. We Thank here, you. we here for you though, man. We got, <laughs> we got you back, man. This is yeah. a piece of cake, man. We, all okay. we're doing is just having a conversation. All right. And so speaking of conversation, Brian, what's going on today? Well, you got some questions for us? Yeah, I have a few questions. So my first question is: What is something that a parent or a loved one taught you that you still use today? You want to kick it off, Greg? Yeah. Man, you know, I do have some memories like that. But the one thing that sticks out for me is one thing that my mother, that I got from my mother was was cleaning up. Okay. And to this day, so first of all, let me just say, I hated cleaning up back when I was young, <laughs> right? <laughs> like my mother, she, she would come in there every Saturday. We had to clean the house up and do all this stuff, man. And and she wouldn't let us go out, let me go outside until I cleaned up the house. And so until I came to prison, I really started to value, you know, the fact that my mother was a clean person. And because yeah. it it rubbed off on me and I became, became a clean person. Actually, I became a, a, a clean freak. <laughs> That's like, I'm like OCD, like clean. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I don't let no dishes pile up, no clothing pile up, none of that. I don't like smells, odors. I love the smell of bleach. I love the smell of soap, and I got that from my mother, man. I think for me, um, it was my uncle. Uh, he taught me how to play football, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I how do I translate that into today? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about um, paying attention. He taught me how to be present and um, and pay attention. So, what about you, Tim? So, unlike you guys, you know, uh, you was taught football by your uncle and you was taught how to clean, you know, from your from your moms, you know. And uh, one thing that I could think of that that lasted, um, that had a lasting impression on me was how my father, uh, he taught me how to sell drugs. So, mm. you know, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't get those uh, upbringings like you guys had, you know. Mm. You know, he tried his best, you know, um, growing up, you know, with him and my mom's, you know, but, but you know, at, at those times in life, you know, it was, everybody was struggling in the ghetto. It was something that, that um, 
led to me uh, committing crime and, you know, and, and coming to prison. So, you know, I, I, I look back at that as, as a bad lesson. You know, I looked at that as, as something that maybe I shouldn't have picked up on it. You know, maybe I shouldn't have been so curious. But at the same time, I, I you know, I take it for what it is. Yeah. Isn't that kind of ironic how some of the things that we pick up from our families, they they that's just what they know. And some things might not be good, but that's just what's passed down to us. Yeah, I agree with you, man, because that definitely was passed down to me, man. And I was selling drugs ever since I was 12 years old. And I just remember growing up selling drugs and I didn't know nothing else. Like thinking about what you just said, though, when I'm thinking about my pops, he didn't know no better. You know? Yeah. He yeah. didn't know no better. He wasn't taught, you know, how to really provide for his family the right way. You know, so, yeah. you know, it's what he learned, too, growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know we're about to hear a story you just did about somebody talking about their dad. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. When I met Jesse Milo, you know, he described... Uh, like his relationship with his dad and how it came about and took some turns and now where he's at right now. And uh, it, I, I felt uh, like we were, uh, had some relatable uh, situations. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I decided to bring him on down, get an interview. And um, and that's what prompted the story that I'm about to share with you guys right now. You know, so I hope everybody enjoy it. All right, let's take a listen. Well, growing up, my father taught me a lot of things. Um, if you talk to him about it, he'll tell you a funny, well, a story that he thinks is funny, where he used to take me to rob houses with them when I was a baby. And he'd be like, oh, you were such a good baby. And you were quiet when I was robbing houses. Then uh, I remember when I was about five, the police kicked in our door and took him to prison. And um, that was the first time I was really without my dad. And uh, when he was in prison, he would make me things and uh, he would send me art. Art has always been a part of my life, probably in an unconventional way. Um, it was also with my mom. I used to ride with her to the methadone clinic when I was young. She used to she used to get high on heroin and she used to doodle these flowers from the magazine. And I used to always see that and I kind of liked it and I started doing it too. And then uh, with my father, I really didn't see him doing art before he went to prison, but when he was in prison, I remember getting things from him. And, and one of the one of the things that I loved the most was I was about in like first grade, and he sent me this wooden box for my school supplies, and it had Garfield on the front, on the top of the box, and he was sitting on a pile of money, like he was a bank robber. And I know that looking back, that's pretty inappropriate for a kid, but I really loved that box. So when my dad got out of prison, I think I was about 11, uh, my big cousin Anthony, he got me collecting comic books and he was murdered when I was a teenager. And um, Wolverine was like my favorite character. And I asked my dad if he could show me how to draw it. And he, that was when he taught me how to trace Wolverine for the first time. That got me trying to trace everything. So I would find all the lowrider art magazines or anything I could find really and just trace whatever I could. And then um, it would be some time before I actually learned how to shade things in. And so, but for me at 11, I thought it was pretty cool just to trace something. <laughs> One memory stands out 
um, really prominent in my mind when I was in juvenile hall. I remember there was a counselor and he was yelling at me. And I was sitting on the floor, because when you got in trouble in juvenile hall, they made you sit on the floor, face a wall somewhere. And uh, he told me, uh, he said, you'll never cut it. You can't cut it in prison. And I remember thinking, I'm my father's son and my father grew up in prison. Like, who are you to tell me I can't cut it in prison? It was like he told me that I wasn't enough. It, uh, it just kind of set prison up as a challenge for me, as something that, like, to be accomplished. And so I didn't have that in the, in the front of my mind, but that was always there in the back of my mind. And I know that because when I got to prison, I remember thinking, like, man, this ain't sh Like, anybody can do this. Anybody can do time, but it's a waste of your life. It's a waste of your light and your spirit. And I, I look back on that moment, and I wish that that counselor in juvenile hall would have dared me to college and would have said, like, you can't cut it in college. Because then maybe in my young mind, I would have flipped it and, and dared myself to college. Like, I wish he would have dared me to the, the better side of me, to the greatness that I had in me, instead of, instead of to the worst place in society. And when I got there, there was a lot of lockdown. There was a lot of riots going on. And we weren't allowed to participate in mental health uh, due to prison politics. You could get attacked if you participated in mental health. And so, but one thing I could do in my prison cell was draw. And my cell used to draw at the time too. And uh, so anything I needed, I could get from him. And so that was one thing I did have access to. And so I started drawing on handkerchiefs. And that really helped me cope with my incarceration until I was able to get into mental health treatment about 15 years later. But then art continued to help me with my incarceration, but also my growth, because when I used to go to self-help groups, later I would work on my art, and that provided me that quiet space to look within myself and kind of go over the things I learned in group. And so art was kind of like that meditative space for me, where it gave me room to continue to grow. So the comic art for me started in a kind of weird way. Um, it was in the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of us didn't know who would live or die. I remember my parents got sick early on and it was pretty scary. I was going through depression and I didn't know if I would lose any of my family to COVID. But when I was worried about COVID, my uncle was murdered by my nephew. And a week before that, my little cousin had took his own life. And then my grandma died the very next day after my uncle was murdered. While in my prison cell trying to cope with just life, uh, I started making these comics, just pointing out the ironies about prison life. And um, one of the ones that was uh, one of the first published ones was where it's a little guy and he's looking in a what's a prison metal toilet and it's he's saying it looks the same on my tray at chow and so it was very simple but i showed it to my neighbors on the tier in corcoran and they loved it and um and then everyone loved it it's uh people here in san quentin they tell me about it they're like man i love that one i have it on my wall so getting published has been kind of a new experience for me people see me and know that i'm alive like it does something for me because when I was sent to die here, my name wasn't even in the newspaper. And so to have the world like know that I exist 
is just pretty cool for me. When I was 22, when I was sent to die in prison, and my sentence always told me that I had no value, that I had nothing good left to offer the world, and I had no chance for release in this life. And so I really had to look within myself and ask, was that true? And so for many years, I, I carried that shame and that guilt, like, that I just, I had no good in me. And with art, I realized that that's not really true because I can make things for people and make them smile. And I do have good to offer. I was, I was fearful about changing my life because I was worried about how my father would judge me. And um, I was like, man, like, would he even talk to me? And um, so the cool thing was, when I did change my life, I got to see my father and like, he didn't even trip. He was just like, you know, are you okay in here? You know, since I've been incarcerated, my father's been there, he's been my support. He's been there to visit me. And this whole time in the last 20 years, 21 years, he hasn't been back to jail as a prisoner and he's been successful. He's been out there working. And so uh, it's pretty cool to see that transformation in my father and then I could share my change with him. A year and a half ago, my little brother was arrested for murder in Los Angeles. And the way his case kind of happened was similar to mine. And he just had a little son, baby Noah. And he is now in the county jail drawing and sending things to his kid. And he asked me for drawings and different things. And so it's sad because here I am 20 years into my incarceration and I hope to be out someday. And I hope my little brother goes free as well. Um, I just hope that we're not trading places like me and my dad traded places. Yeah, that was deep. Just heard from Jesse Milo. Um, Tim, that was your story. Yeah, man, I, uh, that was that was a uh, real heavy man. You know, uh, dude got a lot of stuff that uh, he went through. Uh, you know, and it was a uh, real, real heartbreaking man to hear it, man. You know, uh, my my pops, he ain't never been to prison though. Like, and me and my pops ain't trade places like he he and his. But my pops is doing well too, so that's what uh, actually connected me to his story. It really just reminds you that as we walk around these prison yards you never really truly know what a person has been through until you were someone, you sit down with them and they tell their story. This was trauma. Like this was a sad life that this young dude had to live. And you know, we talked about passing down that trauma from generation to generation. It's yeah. truly sad. Yeah, you know, dude lost his grandmama, lost his uncle, you know, lost his... He lost a lot of lot of family, man, you know, and, 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 you know, when I'm talking to him on the yard, you know, and he's expressing all that to me. Now, I damn near start crying looking at this dude tell his story, man, because it, and it sounds like a, a fiction book, you know, like an urban book or something. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm yeah. like, you know, like, dang, is this true? You know? Yeah. But uh, he, yeah, he, he, it's all real, man. You know, it was, it was a real similar to the loss that a lot of us take behind these walls, you know? Yeah, that just goes to show that um, kids watching everything, you know, you never know what a kid will pick up when they're young. And as an adult, I wouldn't want, you know, my kids to to see me doing things and that's not right. 
right? I have to be more conscious about that, about mm-hmm. doing things around my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you definitely do. I, I just look at a situation like this and you see this father, like Jesse talked about in the story, his father taking him on burglaries, things of that nature. Yeah. She, I mean, like, I mean, just so when he's even just listening to him say that, what type of chance did Jesse even have yeah, in his he, life? He had no chance. You had no other option but to come down this path. Yeah. Yeah, as a father myself, you know, and then thinking about how my father was growing up teaching me. I'm thinking of his father, you know, like his his dad, he, he didn't know no better. At least he passed down something memorable to his son. They can share, you know, in conversation or however, you know, they connect today. And that was art, you know. Art. So it was something that, that, can, that helped him escape uh, uh, mental uh, things he was going through inside prison, you know. At least he had something that his dad taught him that can help him escape this misery of prison that folks go through, especially in level fours where he was at. It's unfortunate that he had to, um, you know, get sentenced to, what, six life sentences, you know, 200 years, you know? Yeah. Man. Man. And how he talks about it, it's like he normalized it, right? That's probably his way that he, he gets through it. By, you know, being light about it, but it's serious. Well, he normalized all the negativity that he was going through. Like, everything that his father introduced him to became normal. Mm. And I think a lot of people come from traumatic experiences. We normalize it. And I think we normalize it because it's almost like a coping mechanism. It is a coping mechanism. You know, um, we see the reality, and the only way we can deal with it is just continue to perpetuate it. Hurt people, continue to hurt people and harm people. When people are suffering, you cause harm. And it's crazy because at the end of the day, everybody's just truly just looking to be healed, you know? Yeah, well said right there, Greg. That's always been like the the, the problem in all ghettos, all urban communities, I should say, you know, because that's all that a lot of people know is the environment. And, um, you know, and learning from their parents, what he talked about, you know, his, his, his parents and quite a few members of his family knew about art mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of all of them take that as, as a, a way of expressing their talents, you know, mm-hmm. in, 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 in some way or another. But um, I think for, for him to still hold on to that yeah. and, and use it as a, as a comfort yeah. yeah, you know it, it, that that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like that was the that was actually the best part of them. You know, this it it's crazy because you have a parent that teaches you how to draw. Te- you know, mother. You know, she's creative, and at the same time, there's there's drug addictions, there's criminality, and yet, you know, how like like so? How does a little impressionable young kid like how do you balance that out? Like, on one hand, I got this father. He's in the game, so I'm trying to do what he does. Hmm. But also, I got a mother that's artistic. She's talented. Pops is talented. But nobody's really using this talent. They're using all the negative skills that they've acquired. And it's just crazy to see that he, he was stuck with with that type of, op- of an option. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
he still made that uh he still made that choice, you know, because he I mean he's seen it like he's seen good and he's seen bad, and he chose to go down that bad path. But like you say though, I'm I'm glad that he still has something to hold on to, mm-hmm. something beautiful to hold on to, which is his art. So I, mm-hmm. I got a question for you. So is there anything that you would want to to pass on to your kids? I passed on something to my sons, kind of similar to that, because my sons used to see me selling dope. They used to see me coming in the house with money, jewelry, all them cars. But in their lives, I was a connected dad. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one of them dads who was really in my children's life. But when I came to uh, to prison, uh, my sons, they was like 12, 13 years old. I, I got disconnected. Mm-hmm. And I think coming to prison, like I did, it, it done something to my sons because they started getting in trouble, you know, and a couple of them even came to prison. So, yeah, that story really, really hit me. You know, that's why I was glad I, I, I got him, man, you know, because I think that story needed to be told. Yeah, Tim, I hear you on that, bro. Um, I, I definitely know it has to be has to be a challenge, you know, inside of uh, being inside of a prison, you know, and then having having children out there. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, you were doing the best with what you had at the time, with your thought process, your belief systems that were passed on to you. And so I, I know your walk now, and I know you're definitely trying to instill something positive in there to basically change that narrative and, and try to disrupt that generational trauma. Fortunately, I don't have kids. I see a lot of people, a lot of gentlemen in prison who have children, and I see how difficult it is for them to to try to parent while inside of prison. Love them, but never had any. But I do have a little sister. I definitely just want to just would love to pass on to her just to be a good person, continue to try to persevere through life, because that was my biggest thing, persevering, going through struggles. And... I just want to pass on that that resiliency. I think my 30 years of incarceration as an is an example of somebody that been through a bad situation, but is not being defined by that bad situation. And that's really finding some some purpose and some meaning in my life, even though I'm incarcerated, but I still wake up with a smile every single day. I'm still consistent in that. Greg, you hit on something like my walk now. Since I've been incarcerated these 17 years, my sons have transformed their lives out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, they they are, all of them working, you know, got mm-hmm. good jobs. And uh, really, they got kids of their own now. Yeah. You know, so I got grandkids out there. Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> Grandpa. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, man. A wonderful feeling. Yeah, my yeah. son's doing good. I'm really proud of him right now. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, even that, that just goes to show that how you've changed. You know, you've changed. Your kids have changed. And I'm quite sure that, you know, they, they were modeling what they've seen from you. Just like Jesse's father turned his whole life around and... Been coming to see him for the last, what do you say, last 20 plus years he's been incarcerated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his father's change has helped Jesse change. It's interesting how his early caretaker, his father, showed him a lot of negative character traits and he gravitated and adopted those traits. 
right? And, and end up committing a crime and becoming incarcerated. But now his father's turned a whole new leaf. And now Jesse's been inspired by his father. And actually, they inspire each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's full circle. That's full circle. You, you got kids, Brian? Yeah, I have kids, man. But it's a blessing to have kids. And it's also a challenge to try to raise your kids by being incarcerated. And I'm just grateful that my kids are who they are today. They didn't follow in my footsteps. I'm extremely proud of my kids. Does that have anything to do with me not being there? That's a good point. Right? To show them some of these bad traits that I had at the time. That's like the question I asked earlier. What would be something that you want to pass down to your kids? And I think for me, what I would want to pass down to my kids is what my mother passed down to me is is being a, a caring person because she would bring people into our house. We didn't have nothing. I always wonder, why does she do that? Then I find myself doing things that I wonder, why am I doing that? But that's just something that was passed down to me. You know, he said something else in one of his pieces about how the counselor dude dared him. You know, he kind of like said, you wouldn't make it in prison. Like mm. a challenge to him. You know, he like challenged him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, what What you, what, what you think about that? I think that's like reverse psychology, mm-hmm. telling a person they can't do something and they just do it to show you that they can do it. That was a negative for him. Mm-hmm. He took it as a challenge. What about mm-hmm. you, Greg? So, yeah, I remember growing up and when I was young, my sister's father basically told me that I was going to either end up dead or I was going to end up in jail, you know, and that's crazy to say to a child, you know, instead of trying to get me off this path and show me something better, like you've just told me that I got these two options, which are both terrible, or death is going to come one day soon, but jail I, I really can relate to that in that piece when he said that about the counselor and then he daring himself to do something then he does something and then he comes to jail and and that's why you're right greg though when you say we got to be careful about the stuff we tell these kids and the stuff that we put out you know like how we do now in the media mm-hmm. yeah. you know how we how we publish our stuff now you know even the piece when he said up in there where how he published his first piece of art, you know, and how that made him feel. Yeah. You know, he putting another message out there now, you know, yeah. the same stuff that we do right now. A positive message. Yeah, too. positive message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that that really mean it meant something to me when I got my first piece published in the San Quentin News. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I seen my name, you know, and, and as, yeah. as, you know, as the byline, you know, I'm like, yeah. man, that, man, that's Timothy Hicks right there, man. That, man I'm like, How did man, that I'm, make you feel? Well, I felt like, boy, I was on top of the world, boy. You know what I'm saying? We, we all do Pete Greg, uh, award-winning yeah. podcaster, whatever, so, all-purpose so. media, the mogul type, you know, what, what, other, what other titles you got out there, G? Yeah, so, Greg, how did that make you feel when you got your first award? Man... Just like Jesse said in his piece, he felt visible. Felt yeah. like somebody was finally seeing him. That's what I felt like. Yeah, Somebody was finally seeing me. Somebody was finally hearing me. And seeing me and hearing me for doing something productive and something positive as opposed to getting that negative recognition. Because mm-hmm. for too long in my life, I sought out that negative recognition. And now... I, everything I try to do is positive. Every voice I try to put on the microphone, I'm trying to lift up everybody's voice because I want everybody 
that's incarcerated to be able to feel the same feeling I felt when somebody said, here's a radio story by Greg Eskridge. Yeah. Um, for me, it was the TEDx event. TEDx. Yeah, TEDx event. We did a TEDx event here in 2016. In prison? In prison, yeah. And I think um, that was one of the biggest accomplishments that I ever done. You know, after doing that, I felt like, hey, like I was seen. So, Brian, before we even get to the awards or the finished product and all that good stuff, so just the early stages of this creativity— because I heard Jesse talk about his creative juices started to flow when he was inside the cell. So what about you coming down to this media center, formulating these stories, editing and all that? Like what, like, what does that do for you? So, yeah, just going through the process, like editing a story or something. I have to go through all this tape to figure out just these small little bits of pieces. And it can be frustrating at times because you have to listen through a whole lot of tape just to get three minutes of stuff out of it. So mm. that's the process that I really enjoy going through. That's what hard. about you, Tim? It was one time that we went through this lockdown for COVID and we were quarantined for, I think was about a year, it was about, about a year or something like that. A year and a half. A year and a half. And uh, and after being used to being up at a computer and you know, I'm able to like type in things really fast or edit stories really fast, we wasn't able to do that. So we got these little processors that we call Neos, right? That's like little historic relic, like a typewriter, right? It's a word processor. Yeah, word processor, right? So we got these little things, right? Uncomfortable. We're not able to come down to the media center. So I'm inside my cell and we still got to get this newspaper out, right? So we getting pressured, you know, basically, you know, by by our audience, you know, like, where's the paper? Where's the paper? You know, who, who, where, who we can't read a story yet, blah, 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 right? So, so I'm the sports editor, so I got to think of a way that I could get sports stories out. So I'm sitting there uncomfortable, sitting at the top bunk, locker, taking up all the space so I got to sit there crunch back looking over this little bitty typewriter typing up these stories off of the TV that I'm seeing right because I got, <laughs> I got I'm coming so, up with this creativity <laughs> of trying to get these articles done right but at that moment of doing it though and just being able to have a TV in my cell and being able to have this little baby Neo that I'm able to type up these stories with, man, and thinking about the the service that I'm providing to these pressured to these people that's pressuring us to get this news. So why out. you got why you got your hump in your back right now, like you sitting on the bed right now? I'm, you, I'm taking myself back to that moment, right? I'm taking myself <laughs> back to that moment. And it's like I remember it at all. So on that hard rack, you know, I get stories out though, man. And that just felt so good to be able to still be able to do that, you know, to go through that process and get them stories out, man. That's that creative. felt really good. That's creative. I think uh, what we're doing right now is great, being able to come down here to this media center, man, and be creative right now in this space right here now, uncuffed. We're yeah. leaving a legacy for somebody else, G. Absolutely. Definitely leaving a legacy. Just like the fathers were leaving legacy of negativity, now now everyone is creating positive legacies and the same thing we're doing right now. Now is we're going to pass uncuffed 
on to the next group of people coming in and it's going to just keep telling the stories of incarcerated people, continuing to amplify our voices in a positive way. Thank you for that story, Tim. Yeah, um, it, sure. it, it was really deep. It made me really reflect. Um, and I really appreciate that. Thank you, Greg. Man, oh, thank good. you, guys. Thank y'all. Before we go, we have a special treat for you. Jesse Milo, who you just heard in the story, wrote a poem just for Uncuffed. And he'll read it for you now. The title of this poem is Who in This Room? Not sure if feeling invisible or the life sentence makes me sadder. Who in this room has ever felt like they didn't matter? Who in this room has ever felt so small that they lost their voice and didn't want to talk at all? Who in this room knows what it's like to fly or have tragedy strike and break something inside? Who in this room has ever wanted to express their emotion but instead suppress them deeper than the ocean? Who in this room is not a San Quentin prisoner but still lives in a cage? Who has ever been handcuffed and told to shut up? Who in this room has ever questioned their life if you're making a difference and if there's enough time? Who in this room is without one scar? Well, I assure you, none of you are. If you look around, we are in this room together and through Uncuffed, we share our stories, not for glory, but for love for each other. And when we share, we lay our souls bare and it's no longer just you, but it's we standing there. A while back, somebody told me something that blew my mind. He said our stories have value and my mind quietly exploded. Cause if my story has value, then what else does that mean? It means that we have value. I got so used to working for free and being told I was worthless for so long. I always knew I wanted to say something. I just had to figure out what. Many of us are so broken as children that we lack the courage to even get on this stage. But we have to tell our stories or they die with us. I'm not sure what's worse. My six life senses are feeling invisible to the world. You've heard that saying, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, if we live our whole lives in a cage and no one sees us living, are we really alive or just existing? And sharing our stories, there's healing. When we share our stories, we become lighter because those who hear it help us to carry them. And in sharing, we grow together and feel less alone. Our bodies may be in chains, but our stories are uncuffed. Thanks, Jesse. And now we're going to throw it to Greg for the credits. You can find Uncuffed on the radio at KALW 91.7 FM at weareuncuffed.org or subscribe to Uncuffed in any podcast player. The Uncuffed crew at San Quinn is Juan Haynes, Brian Acey, Steve Brooks, Anthony Carvalho, Timothy Hicks, Ryan Pagan, and me, I'm Greg Eskridge. Thanks to the team at KALW Public Radio, Nina Gensler-Debs, Angela Johnston, Sonia Paul, Kathy Novak, Eli Workchafter, James Rollins, Ben Trefney, and our sound designer, Eric Maserati E. Abercrombie. Our theme music is by David Jossie. And thanks to the staff at San Quinn who make this possible, Skylar Brown, and Lieutenant Barry, who approved this episode. 
We fact check everything to the best of our ability. Uncuff gets support from the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. That's a wrap on this episode of Uncuffed. I'm Greg Eskridge. Thanks for listening.